So turn uh, in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, near the end of Acts chapter 15. Our attention actually will be on the end of uh, Acts 15 and into the beginning of Acts chapter 16. And if you're new to the Bible, oh, we're so glad that you're here. This is a safe place to learn how to read and understand God's Word. You'll be able to jump right in with us this morning. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, English Standard Version, the version that we use, you can pull out your mobile device, no judgment, and punch in Acts 15 ESV. Uh, we also have print copies available in the lobby. You're welcome at any time to get up during the sermon, make your way back there, grab a print copy if you would like to have one on your lap in front of you. Well, as I mentioned, we are in the final verses of one of the major sections of the book of Acts. The scene in front of us is about to fade to black right before another scene opens up. Now, Peter has been the apostle in the spotlight so far as as the gospel has been making its way out from Jerusalem, uh, really back in chapter 9, the first uh, Gentile, uh, non-Jewish Christian converts uh, came to faith, and we've been tracing the movement of the gospel ever since, with Peter really kind of being the, the, the main apostle that we have been tracking. But a new apostle is about to take center stage. We've already been hearing his name. This guy is the guy who ends up authoring most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. He's been getting some airplay, but this narrative here is about to shift to a really an exclusive focus on Paul and his missionary endeavors as he makes his way deeper and deeper into Gentile territory. And we just, we need to hear the opening verses of Acts ringing in our ears over and over again while we read these different stories, different accounts. There's, there's a bunch of different events that happen, but they're all really proceeding from one sentence that Jesus spoke back in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the fact that there's a church here in Orange, <laughs> the 21st century. It's proof, proof positive that these words are being fulfilled. These verses are going to set the scene for the next stage in this fulfillment of Jesus' promise to send this gospel, this good news of forgiveness and peace with God into every corner of the globe. But today's scene is going to be a bit strange. It turns out that the spread of the gospel isn't one triumphant victory march around the globe. Here we're going to see how Christ gets his gospel out, which he does. He's promised to do it. He's going to do it. He gets his gospel out through deeply flawed messengers in the midst of deeply flawed circumstances. So look with me now. I'll show you this. Beginning Acts chapter 15, verse 36. I'm going to read through chapter 16, verse 5, and then I'll pray. Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark uh, with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Chapter 16. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, 
the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Very words of God, would you join me in a brief prayer that he would help us understand them. Lord, in your word, no word is wasted. A divine author stands behind the words that we just read. A a good God has delivered these words to us that our faith, too, might be strengthened and enriched. And that we might put our faith in this great Savior who has promised good news, good tidings for those who turn from their sins and believe in him. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would have its intended effect on us. Would you help me as I seek to serve my friends by explaining to them uh, these wonderful truths in your word? Uh, Help me, help them. May your spirit be at work in all of us as we sit underneath the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I wish none of this had happened. I wish none of this had happened. Are there any moments in your life or seasons in your life that you would say that to? What do you wish had never happened? What do you wish had never happened? In in my favorite movie, The Lord of the Rings, Frodo spoke those words about his own situation. He's, if you've seen the movie, speaking with the wizard Gandalf, deep uh, in the mines of Moria in a deep dark place, Frodo begins by lamenting the fact that his uncle Bilbo hadn't killed the evil creature Gollum, who's now stalking them in the dark. Frodo says to Gandalf, the wise wizard, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. Gandalf replies, pity. It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet for good or ill before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Frodo responds, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. I wish none of this had happened. It's not a stretch of the imagination to assume that some of the men we just read about in the book of Acts may have said the same thing to themselves. I wish the end of Acts chapter 15 hadn't happened. (laughs) I wish we hadn't argued with each other. I mean, you can imagine Paul and Barnabas saying this. I wish we hadn't parted ways. I mean, Paul has to be feeling some regret 
since he was good friends with Barnabas. And my goodness, if you've read the rest of Acts, they've been through some harrowing moments together. Plus, Barnabas' name literally means son of encouragement. The apostles gave him that nickname back in Acts chapter 4 because of his reputation. Who would want to lose the companionship of a guy known for his encouragement? This had to hurt. But, but our author, Luke, wants us to see that there's something bigger at work here than just the actions of the disciples, right? There's something at work here bigger than just the actions of the disciples. And there's a lesson for us here. Christians really should never definitively say what Frodo said. We should never really say, I wish none of this had happened to me. Why? Because there's something bigger at work in our lives than just the things we do and just the things that have been done to us. The word that Christians use to describe this is providence. Providence. You familiar with that word? That's what this passage is about. Providence. What's providence? Well, I can't say it better than our favorite pastor and author. We love to quote John Piper. John Piper succinctly describes providence as God's wise and purposeful sovereignty. His wise and purposeful sovereignty. In other words, sovereignty, God rules over everything. He has the right to rule and the power to rule, and he does rule. God rules over everything, whether we like it or not. And in his ruling, he wisely directs all events to fulfill the purposes that he has determined for them. Here's how our statement of faith says, oh, I love our statement of faith, and I can't say it better than our statement of faith. Let me just read it to you. As sovereign Lord, this is providence, God is present at all times to direct all circumstances in accord with his holy and loving will. In everything, God supremely acts for his glory and for the good of his people in Christ, granting us great comfort an unshakable hope in God's love, wisdom, and faithfulness to us in this life and in eternity. Well, those are a couple big sentences. But God directs all circumstances in accord with his holy and loving will for the good of his people, for the glory of his name, and in doing so, he provides us great comfort and unshakable hope in him. That is precisely what's happening here in Acts. Or my way of summarizing it another way, God's perfect providence is behind our imperfect circumstances. You can take that to the bank, okay? God's perfect providence is behind our imperfect circumstances. I want to show you how this works out in our passage. Two imperfect circumstances I'm going to pull out of the passage that reveal God's perfect providence. And those, those two imperfect circumstances are on my outline if you're taking notes. I'll give them to you as we go. So here we go. Point number one, imperfect circumstance number one, a sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement. Verse 36 of chapter 15 shows us right from the get-go that God is behind what's happening here. I mean, I could take you back again like I already did to Acts chapter 1 to show you that God's behind everything that's happening here, but verse 36, it's right there. Here it is. Verse 36 again. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. This is Gentile territory and see how they are. What a wonderful impulse. What a great idea. 
I mean, Paul and Barnabas had seen Gentiles come to Jesus throughout Asia Minor, and now they decide, hey, we should actually go check in on them and make sure that they're all right. Make sure that they're remaining faithful to Jesus, that they haven't been derailed, that they haven't given up. Now, where do you think Paul got this idea? Was he just a really good leader, really smart, really insightful, really caring, very pastoral? I think those things are certainly on the surface. But we should not read this and think that that idea originated with Paul. It originated with God. I mean, God is the one who cares for his people. God is the one who makes sure his people are cared for. He planted this idea in Paul's heart and mind. He led Paul to speak it out loud. And God prepared the soil of the hearts of the other brothers around him so that they would agree with him and be ready to carry it out. Now, after verse 36... Who would imagine that this whole thing is about to blow up? It seems like, oh, this is such a good impulse. Everyone's on, everyone's on board. But, but literally, it's about to take a turn for the worse. Verse 37. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. Fine. Right? No. Verse 38, not fine. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul and Barnabas are traveling around. Mark was with them. Back in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, we get this very unremarkable description of the event that they're talking about here. This is chapter 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. All these P words, they're alliterating in my head. Uh, And John left them. This is all that it says in chapter 13. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's all, that's all the detail that we get from Luke earlier in Acts. Luke doesn't seem to indicate the first time we hear about this event that, that Mark did anything wrong. There's more to the story, and we get some detail. We still don't get much detail, but we do get some detail in our passage from the word withdrawn. Verse 38 says he had withdrawn from them, and in English, that word makes it sound like it isn't really that bad, but In fact, if we were all Greek-speaking and Greek-reading, we would see that in Greek, that word carries the connotation of rebelling and rejecting authority. Paul's talking about a serious breach of relationship and trust. When the going got rough, Mark got going. That's what happened. He left them in a bad spot, and he left them in a bad way. And now there's disagreement about the two missionaries about what to do. Should Mark be given a second chance? a chance to redeem himself? Well, that's Barnabas's position. I think if Barnabas were here, he'd say, look, since then, Mark has grown and changed, and he's not the same guy, and we can trust him now. That's, that's where he makes his argument from. Or, or, should the danger of the upcoming mission necessitate that they leave him behind because he's proven untrustworthy? That's Paul's position. I mean, Paul's about to head back to a town, Derby and Lystra, you see it in uh, chapter 16. He's about to head back to a town where just a couple chapters earlier, they tried to stone him to death. So we can sympathize with his desire for trustworthy, committed, ready-to-die-with-you companions. Both of their positions have merit on Mark. One commentator, I. Howard Marshall, he, he put it really well when he wrote, this is a classic example. Classic example of the perpetual problem of whether to place the interests of the individual or of the work as a whole first. What do you do? Do you put the interests of the individual at work and take a risk on him again? Or do you prioritize the work as a whole and use people that you're sure you can trust? And he says there is no rule of thumb for dealing with it. 
We're not talking about right or wrong. But both Paul and Barnabas feel very strongly. Verse 39. And there arose a sharp, and that word, underline that in your Bible. Not a disagreement, not just a disagreement. A sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. The second half of that sentence is meant to show you how bad this was. I mean, they, they were like, I can't go with you anymore. Like, this wasn't like, oh, okay, well, hey, guess we just agree to disagree, see you around. That's not what happened. I mean, they had a big argument and said, look, okay, I'm done then. Like, you go your way and I'm going mine. This was rough. This hurt. This was hard to watch. It was probably awkward. If you had been there, it would have been like watching mom and dad fight. Like, it would have been unpleasant. And think about this, too. Oh, this breaks my heart. Mark is caught right in the middle of all of it. His embarrassing moment of unfaithfulness is being rehashed in front of everybody. His character on display. Oh, as someone who has made a lot of mistakes and carries my share of regrets, I feel very bad for Mark. I, in fact, I'm a little mad at Paul and Barnabas for putting Mark through that, if I'm honest. <laughs> Meanies. This was ugly, okay? This was, this was an ugly church split. <laughs> a ruined and fractured relationship between two men who'd been best friends and had shared, oh, the most important task in the world together. They were stewarding the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who hadn't yet heard it. They did that together, risked their lives for it. And now they won't travel together anymore over a debatable issue. I think those present would have been saying, I wish this had never happened. So where on earth do you see God's purposeful sovereignty, his providence at work here. A bunch of ways, actually. I had to limit myself. A bunch of ways. Here's God's providence at work here. Look at the second half of verse 39. So Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Now that just seems like a a detail, a pretty insignificant detail, but it's not. John Mark gets his second chance. His failure is not the end of his usefulness in God's kingdom. God had redeemed even this disappointing moment in that man's life. God used it to put proverbial wind back in the sails of one of his servants who had failed him. This sweet, sweet providence as God puts Mark back on the mission field. And later on in Paul's letters, we see the respect the respect and regard that that Paul has for both Barnabas and Mark. God would eventually restore both of these men in Paul's eyes as well. So this is not the end of the story in any stretch of the imagination. In fact, at the end of his life, Paul would call for Mark to come and minister to him and with him. But here's another way. God's providentially working. Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Again, this is not an insignificant detail. Silas, it says in verse 33, had gone back to Jerusalem. There in Antioch. He'd gone back to Jerusalem, and so Paul sends for him. And Silas represents the Christians and the leaders in Jerusalem. And if you remember from from earlier in chapter 15 from last week, there were men from Jerusalem who had gone out to trouble the Gentile churches by erroneously telling them they needed to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be a Christian. But now the Jerusalem church is sending one of their own, one of their best leaders to safeguard against that happening again. Silas is a representative from Jerusalem to show their support 
for the Gentile mission being led by Paul out of Antioch. So this is an important partnership. Important partnership. And the brothers in Antioch gladly receive him. Oh, it's such a sweet phrase. They send him out prayerfully with the expectation that God is with them. That's what that, that phrase, commended them to God's grace, signifies. They prayed for them with faith that God would bless them. And, and what's the effect? What's the effect of all of this? Verse 41. And he, Paul, and his companions went through Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Oh, that last phrase, you see it twice in our passage, strengthening the churches. That last, that phrase has to do with resolve in the faith. The church members' faith may have been wavering or stagnating, but God designed and used these men's visit to bolster their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's perfect providence in a very imperfect situation. Perfect providence, imperfect situation. That's not all that God was up to here. Now there's two missionary parties instead of one, right? They're covering more ground, strengthening more believers in more churches. And of course, they didn't design this, did they? They didn't design this. They didn't design there to be two missionary parties. They were going to stay together and be one. But God was behind all of this, working out his perfect providence. Even in the midst of their imperfect attitudes and actions. Now, can you see it now? Perfect providence working in seemingly imperfect circumstances. And listen, the same thing is happening in your life and in my life. This isn't unique to these guys. This isn't just how God works like sometimes, you know, in certain instances. This is how he's always working for his people. He's always working out his perfect plan in the midst of our imperfect lives and circumstances. Now, we will not always be able to detect the silver lining. I've showed you some of the silver lining in here. You're not always going to be able to see that in your own life. In fact, I think many times you won't. But what you can be a thousand percent certain of is that God is always accomplishing his good purposes no matter what bad things you face, no matter what bad things you do even. And even if you can't see the silver lining you can know that it's there because of the great and good hand that is guiding history. Look, you and I, not may, but will, you and I will experience the painful loss of a relationship like the men here. I have a, I have a long list of people in my life who I miss dearly. Some of the relationships ended poorly. Some didn't. Some are my fault. Some aren't. There are all kinds of reasons these people are, are no longer in my life. Perhaps you could think of a relationship right now that went down in flames. A friend, family member, significant other, a former fellow Christian even, who abandoned their faith and in abandoning their faith abandoned you as well. But whatever that is, whatever that is that's, that's playing around in your mind right now, we shouldn't believe or say that that sad thing that transpired had no good purpose. Or that its only purpose was for evil or harm. It can't be. That can't be it. God's perfect plan is always on schedule. It's always on schedule. The Bible says this in so many different ways. It just, 
a quick survey that God makes beauty from ashes, or he rebuilds the ruined city, or he liberates the captive from prison and exile, or he gives children to the barren woman, or he brings the lonely and outcast into a home. Each of those presupposes something terrible happened to those people, but that God will bring goodness and beauty from it. I mean, the biggest, clearest, boldest example of this in the Bible is the cross itself, right? I mean, that's the clearest way to see perfect providence in imperfect circumstances at the cross, where, where the one who should have been worshipped was mocked. The one who should have been loved was, was hated and reviled. The one who should have been obeyed by men was cursed and crushed by them. The cross was the most vile act in human history, yet at the same time, it was God's great triumph of grace for us. And it was planned forever ago. It was planned forever ago. And it accomplished exactly what God intended for it to accomplish. Our salvation. The very thing that these brothers are going around telling everybody about. The very thing we wish to tell everyone about. That the payment for every sin for those who trust in Jesus was made at the cross. The payment for Paul and Barnabas's angry exchange was made at the cross. The payment for John Mark's unfaithfulness was made at the cross. And everything else every other Christian has done wrong ever. The cross was perfect providence in imperfect circumstances. That's how the gospel works because that's how God works. And that is why Above all, we can know that God has planned good. He has planned good. Not just using it, not just taking advantage of it. He has planned good through every bad moment you experience. That's how he does everything. Imperfect circumstance number two. Spiritual immaturity. We had a sharp disagreement. Now we got spiritual immaturity. In chapter 16, Paul's journey now begins. We don't hear much about Barnabas again in Acts, except in Paul's letters, where he speaks very highly of him. Like I mentioned now, we follow Paul and his companions as they travel farther and farther and farther away from Jerusalem. And in verse 1, we meet Timothy. Another very important New Testament figure. Look there with me now. Verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. This is where he was, uh, they tried to stone him to death. <laughs> he finds a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. As verse 2 says, Timothy's young. Okay, he's young, but has a stellar reputation. I mean, wouldn't that be nice to have that written about you in the Bible? That the, they all thought well of you. <laughs> they had a bunch of respect for you. Stellar reputation. And Paul sees the potential in him as, as a missionary and a pastor. And again, for those familiar with the rest of Paul's letters, you know Timothy becomes his protege and a pillar in the early church. Verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him right? Because of his stellar reputation, which sounds great. Sounds great, right? Hey, great. Take this guy with you. Let's get him some experience out there uh, sharing the gospel and, and uh, meeting all kinds of new people in new places, right? Sounds great, but there's a problem. 
Timothy is from a mixed lineage. Jewish mom, Greek father, who appears his father to no longer be in the picture. But because he has a Jewish parent, the Jews will want him to act like a Jew culturally, which would mean, you guessed it, we're talking about circumcision again. Everyone's favorite topic who's been here since the book of Galatians. Can we talk about circumcision some more, please? Sure, here we go. (laughs) Timothy isn't circumcised. And so Paul does something that shocks everybody. Second half of verse 3. And he took him, Timothy, and circumcised him. What? Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek, which means his dad is probably the reason he's not circumcised. All right. After Paul, Peter, and the rest of the leaders in Jerusalem have argued so clearly that circumcision is unnecessary for salvation, why would Paul cave to Jewish sensibilities on this issue? Seems to make no sense. (laughs) The simplest way that I could sum up Paul's position here and why he does this is that he was fine circumcising somebody for cultural rather than salvific reasons, okay? Issues of salvation. Look, you want to do something culturally that's permissible? Go for it. As long as we're clear that we're not talking about this being necessary for salvation. Paul is clear that circumcision has nothing to do with salvation. And he's got the letter from Jerusalem proving that he's not alone on this. He's got full apostolic authority from Jerusalem. The guys at the very heart of the (laughs) Jewishness saying you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. So he's clear on that. And so, because they're so clear on that, Paul is fine making all kinds of concessions in order to avoid offending cultural sensibilities. Paul obviously felt that he could ask Timothy to be circumcised for the good of their mission, which is why he's doing it. He's doing it so that they'll they'll be able to freely pass through these Jewish areas without stumbling anybody. He's fine circumcising him for the good of their mission because he knows he, he's not going to in danger of saying that it's necessary for salvation. Christians can make concessions on things like this that don't violate convictions. That's what happens. He's making a concession, not violating a conviction about the gospel. And the point we should just stop again here and notice is that they're wading into a very imperfect situation. I mean, Look at this. There's still a ton of spiritually immature Jewish believers who are confused about the role of the law in the life of of Christians. That's the circumstance, right? These guys are going to be offended by the fact that Timothy is not circumcised. And that's what they're going into. And so Paul has them circumcised. And what does this reveal? God uses it to reveal both the wisdom and flexibility of Paul the missionary and the character of Timothy. Right? You were wondering about Timothy's character. Paul asks him to do it, which is wise, and Timothy does it. I mean, not to mention the other admirable aspects of Timothy that are present here in this passage. The guy's given up his whole life to join Paul. He's leaving behind his his mother and grandmother, which again, if you read other letters in the New Testament, were dear to him and were dear Christians. He's given that up to go on his dangerous missionary endeavors. He's clearly gripped by a desire to live for Jesus, no matter the cost, even when that cost includes adult circumcision. What a guy. (laughs) I mean, 
wouldn't it have been nice if they didn't have to do this? <laughs> it would have been nice if they didn't have to do this. I'm sure Paul was dreading a little bit the conversation with Timothy. He's like, okay, I think I'm going to have to ask him to do this. Ah, oh, what a terrible thing to have to ask somebody to do. And I'm sure Timothy would have been happy not to do it. But look at what God used it to accomplish. Verse 4, as they went on their way through their cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Check out the irony. Timothy gets circumcised to free them up to travel through churches in the area and tell them you don't have to get circumcised to be saved. The irony in the text, the spiritually mature taking hits for the spiritually immature. But look at the effect. Verse 5, chapter 16. So, because of all this, the churches were strengthened in the faith. And they increased in numbers daily. God's working through all of this. Same phrase as the end of chapter 15 with that added note. And this is Luke's signal. This is, he's, he is now, this, he's sunsetting this scene for us to prepare us for the next scene. That last phrase, and they increased in numbers daily. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that, a phrase like that, or that phrase sprinkled in throughout when he's transitioning. The church is growing, prospering. They're coming to Jesus. Perfect providence. Very imperfect situation. At times, mature believers will have to make concessions for immature believers. But look at how God uses it. He uses it to mature the faith of the immature believers. Again, it would be great if they weren't immature in the first place, if they just got it right from the get-go. But who gets it right from the get-go? Nobody. Which means in our church, we're going to bump into this. We hope, we pray, we intend for there to be a mixture of mature and immature believers in this church. That's normal in, disciple, in cycles of discipleship. As people come to faith, they don't come to faith knowing everything. They come and they need to grow. And even as you grow in the faith, you need to grow more. There's always more room. And God even leverages the spiritual immaturity to strengthen faith in Christ. The reason that this church is a safe place to grow in our faith is because there are plenty of mature believers who know how to make room for us, know how to make concessions for us, know how to overlook our quirks and our weaknesses, and know how to love us while God grows us. I mean, even our own immaturity, this just gives me so much hope. <laughs> our own immaturity can't stop God from accomplishing his good purposes in us. Oh, don't be discouraged by one another's immaturity. Don't be discouraged by your own immaturity. It cannot stop the good that God intends to do. He will even work through your immaturity to get it done. <laughs> and thank God that's true. Otherwise, there would be no hope for me and I would give up tomorrow. Listen, if you're tired of hearing this, then I've done my job. God's perfect providence is behind our imperfect circumstances. God's perfect providence behind our imperfect circumstances. Let me, let me dig up for you an old hymn, a hymn that we don't sing here uh, on Sundays, but it's a great hymn, hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, so poetically pictures this truth about God. Here's what, here's what the, the poem says. 
deep and unsearchable minds, speaking of God, deep and unsearchable minds of never-failing skill. God treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. I know that you all have bitter tastes in your mouths. In the form of regrets, hurts, tragedies, losses, mistakes, bitter tastes. Oh, but today I... I believe God wants all of us to walk out of here remembering that that bitterness will turn sweet as we trust in him, trust that he has good plan and wait for him to bring it about. God will not fail. He will not fail to make all things work together for the good of those who love him. He's promised it. He has the power and wisdom to make it so. Remember Frodo's words from earlier. I wish the rain had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. Here's how Gandalf replies to him. He says, So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that, the old man says, that is an encouraging thought. I want to leave you today with that encouraging thought. That none of your pain is wasted. None of your sins or mistakes define your future. None of the sins committed against you will be overlooked and not brought to justice if you cast yourself on Jesus by faith. For the one who redeems us from sin and death is making all things new, us and our circumstances included. So keep your eyes on him. Oh, this is the encouraging thought. Keep your eyes on him until he brings his great plan for you and for me and for everything. To its promised conclusion. We pray that we would. Lord, it does bring us great comfort to know that you can take the things in our lives that appear to only be bad and instead be using them for good to teach us to trust in your Son, to keep us trusting in your Son, to help us learn how to hold fast to his promises, even to to bear more fruit through our lives for your glory and for the good of those around us. 
even the sad and bad things that happen to us, you are using for those purposes. And all that your gospel might advance to every corner of the globe, that's behind all of it, that others might come to trust and believe and rest in and obey this great Savior who we have been singing about and praying to and learning about this morning. So Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here with an encouraging thought in our minds that you are using every imperfect situation we find ourselves in to bring about your perfect plan. Oh, keep that thought in our minds and our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.